Hello and welcome to Tech Weekly, a podcast where we go through some of the most important news in the worlds of tech, crypto, fintech and beyond. I'm Nasana Silva, joined today by City AM reporters Lily Russell-Jones and Charlie Conchi. Later, I'll be talking to Charlie about how fintech businesses have responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But first, Lily and Charlie will be talking to Charlie Morris, Chief Investment Officer and Founder of ByteTree, about Bitcoin's role in the current conflict. So, Lily, over to you. As ever in times of crisis, investors have been looking for the safest place to store their cash. But an ambivalent role for crypto is emerging amid Russia's conflict with Ukraine. The price of Bitcoin fell to $34,000 a week ago when Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It has since rallied more than 25% and is now trading above $43,000, seemingly providing a safe haven for investors after the conflict proved a drag on stock markets. However, Government and regulators are concerned that crypto assets are being used to avoid sanctions targeting Russia, sparking fears that crypto might see a regulatory crackdown. The world's largest crypto exchanges, including Binance, Coinbase and Kraken, have come under scrutiny for refusing to block the accounts of Russian users, despite high volumes of rubles being exchanged for crypto assets, a possible sign that sanctions are being evaded. I'm joined by Charlie Morris, the Chief Investment Officer for ByteTree. Hello, Charlie. Hello. What can we make of Bitcoin's role as a safe haven asset amid the conflict with Ukraine? I think in the first instance, as you said, Bitcoin went down on the news of of the invasion. And as did most asset prices, because not many things like bad news, apart from short positions, frankly. So, um, you know, I don't think that that people would, you know, rightly should, should rush out and buy Bitcoin because people are starting to get killed. That's not the point at all. I think the reason it started to perk up after a few days was the realization that that, that, that here is another legitimate use case for Bitcoin. You know, there are three, there are four actors in this in this conflict between um, Russia and Ukraine. You've got the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government, the Russian people, and the Russian government. Three out of four of them are goodies, and one's a baddie in our eyes. And Bitcoin really benefits the goodies, which is the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government. And to some extent, the Russian people, and who, who, who many of whom have done no wrong. And so, if you were Russian today and you had some Bitcoin, you'd be less concerned about the instability that's come to your financial well-being. And that's not a bad thing. That that's a good good thing for that person. Um, the Russian government, I think, the idea of them trying to use Bitcoin to work around sanctions, I think, it shows misunderstanding by people like Janet Yellen, who are talking about this. Bitcoin's not nearly big enough to take on Russian reserves. You know, all of the Russian reserves, if you try to put them into Bitcoin, the Bitcoin price would be 5, 10x. If you try to sell Russian oil for Bitcoin, fine, that might work quite nicely. Um, but I think this idea that you can use to evade at the state level and laugh. So what about at the individual level? So thinking about the fact that Western governments, the UK, the US, European parliaments have targeted specific individuals in Russia with sanctions. Um, we've seen that crypto to ruble trading has increased. So on Monday, I think the figure for trade volumes between crypto and Russian rubles was $63 million. Um, do you think there's a moral case for blocking Russian users from getting onto exchanges, given that some bad actors might be using those avenues to avoid sanctions? Well, it's a topical question because uh, last night at a dinner, um, I uh, met CZ, the CEO of Binance, who was talking about this very issue. And 
you know, they have not been asked by anyone to block Russian citizens. That's why they have not blocked Russian citizens. They say they're a neutral organization. They follow the rules that, that are put in front of them. They've, they've given a, made a significant donation of $10 million, I think, to the Ukrainian re yeah, refugees, which has put them in trouble with Russia. So they can't win. But they, they declare themselves a law-abiding, neutral org organization. And I believe that's, that's exactly what they are. But they're told to close Russian accounts. That's what they'll do by the Russian regulator. But what about forums like decentralized exchanges where users can remain anonymous, which makes it difficult to know who's buying and trading crypto assets? While centralized exchanges like banks are required to perform identity checks in part to make sure that sanctions are being enforced, some of the payments infrastructure offered for crypto lets people remain anonymous, which means that sanctioned actors can slip through the net. Yeah. So the centralized exchanges, which are obeying all the rules and, and giving the information they want, should leave them alone because they haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, the audit trail is there. The blockchain gives you a lovely trail of information. You have to phone up companies like Elliptic and they'll tell you exactly what you need to know about you know, where the money came from, where it went to. So um, I, I think knee-jerk reactions to a very unfortunate situation in Ukraine and Russia that's got really nothing to do with Bitcoin and, and, and using it as a good opportunity to bash it uh, it, 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 it stinks, frankly. You know, go and deal with the, the real issues. You know, I think more people would feel more comfortable about the nuclear deterrent today than they did a month ago. It's a big reminder. It's a wake-up call of how dangerous the world can be. That's the issue. Crypto has nothing to do with this. Coming back to the idea of whether Bitcoin is a safe haven asset, it seems like during the conflict with Ukraine, it's become increasingly politicised. So, it's being used to funnel kind of donations to Ukraine and um, to Ukrainian armed forces and civilian organizations. It's also being used possibly to avoid sanctions, or there's a question about whether that's the case, which is bringing crypto under closer scrutiny. Does that mean that traditional safe haven assets like gold have an advantage over Bitcoin for investors and that there's a bit more security there for them? It was never a competition. Bitcoin never has been in competition with gold. Bitcoin never will be in competition. Got this of a different role. The only thing that's the same between them is the limited supply. And um, and certainly at Bytree, you know, we're big proponents of this idea of mixing them together. And and the reason for that is because, you know, the, 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 the gold is the is at the top of the food chain in the commodity. It's the only it's the only commodity that you can actually um, own as a monetary asset over the long term. I mean, yes, there's silver, but it's less liquid. There's lots of it and that sort of thing. It's not a real precious metal. Some people would be upset me for me to hear that, but um, but it's true. So basically, you've got these two assets, and, and and Bitcoin works when when the network is growing, which tends to be during the good times. Now, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine might grow the network in Russia and Ukraine temporarily, but it's not good globally for Bitcoin. You know, people around the world aren't suddenly thinking, "Well, let's let's go and adopt Bitcoin for the war in Ukraine." I mean, at the margin, more people will think, "You know, how would I protect myself if it happened to me?" And that's part of the long-term use case. But I didn't think in the short term that's why the price went up. It's more the recognition that, you know, this thing is very, very resilient. And, um, uh, you know, gold was the asset that, that responded much more, much sooner on the bad news and in, in, in the run up to the bad news. And the reality that um, what this has done to the world economy means that the rate won't rise as quickly as we previously thought and the inflation is going to go up. And that's what gold does. So we, we touched on a few different ways that um, Bitcoin is being used as both a sort of payments tool 
and a sort of cross-border payments tool. It's getting funds across borders and helping the sort of Ukrainian cause. And it's also being used as a sort of safe haven asset, if you don't mind me using the term. But is there a tension there between the two or do you think this is just two ways that, you know, investors can see um, or see Bitcoin's utility sort of developing? I don't think Bitcoin was designed necessarily to cross borders. I think it was designed to uh, transfer value between computers, which if they, they could be inside borders or they could be across borders. And it, but it doesn't matter. I, that's the real point here. And you know, you've got to be realistic about this, about you know, where, this, where this is all taking us. And if, if in the future we have... Um, um, the situation where we've taken down Russia's financial system by basically confiscating their their dollar reserves and and and, and cutting them off from from trade and particularly oil exports and so forth, then it's unsurprising they're going to they're going to create a workaround. It's completely unsurprising. Why, why wouldn't they? And they spent since two thousand and fourteen a long time trying to protect themselves and be ready for significant sanctions. The sanctions went further than they expected. I guess that was the reason they had to was because Russia was so prepared. They had so much reserve, so much gold, a balanced budget. You know, they, they were swimming in cash, and so you had to do something to to take away that advantage, that preparation for war, if you like. But they will build a, a workaround, and that workaround would be the opposite of crypto. It would look more like the Chinese solution, which would be a central bank digital currency. And you basically, you know, there's two ways to do this. Uh, bearing in mind, crypto is not going away. So impossible. Whoever you are, whatever you're thinking, this is not going away. It's here to stay. Make your choice. Do you want free market crypto, which is Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the other fun stuff like NFTs, and, and a fiat banking system, which, which, by the way, the private sector can, can, can create stable coins and so forth? Or do you want a totalitarian central bank digital currency, which is at odds with the concept of crypto? So China have opted for that, that, that latter model, where they've got a C, CBDC. Uh, Russia will probably be forced to go down that route. And, um, and in that society, you don't really welcome Bitcoin because of what you're saying, Charlie. You know, you... you, 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 you it, 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 you know, Bitcoin provides a workaround. So the whole point of a, of, of a Chinese renminbi CBDC is the money can't escape. You've kept it in China. If you're a Chinese billionaire, it's pretty hard for money to leave if, if your wealth is held by C, um, CBDC. So you wouldn't, there would be no point in having that alongside crypto. So I think the point here is, which side of the, are you on? Are you um, a, a, a liberal democracy do you believe in, in, in property rights and that sort of thing? In which case, embrace crypto. Or I think crypto is ugly and then embrace um, CBDC. And if you're in the latter camp, then please leave Europe. Can we come back to what you said about the possibility of a blended gold and Bitcoin product that you talked about? Just because you spoke about gold and Bitcoin having very different roles, um, I think Bitcoin is often referred to as digital gold. And there's this idea that because it's got a high stock to flow ratio and the production is algorithmically set, that it can be a really secure store of value for people in a similar way to gold. And I know that Goldman Sachs has suggested that Bitcoin might take market share from gold as a store of value asset over the next five years. And that's part of why they predicted that Bitcoin might go to 100,000 if it's able to win investors over. But are you suggesting that there's less of a competition between gold and Bitcoin and more of a complementary relationship where they're doing two different things in someone's portfolio? 
I totally agree with that. They are complementary. You know, one's all about the internet and one's all about the real physical world. You know, one's embraced by central banks. The central banks already own lots of gold. They're not going to. They're not going to just sort of give it away and say, oh, "Sorry, we were, we were wrong. Let's have this electronic thing." You know, it doesn't work like that. And they're, they're, you know, if, if the central bank started by a bitcoin, it would it would be fifty x from here. It would just be ridiculous. It's just inconceivable. So they're, they're just going to coexist. And I think gold's very much part of the system. And they are different. You know, the fiat real world. Um, needs gold, and, and and the and the digital world needs its own thing. It's an extension of the internet. It's an extension of the tech revolution. And I think the other point about crypto that people don't understand. I mean, I've, I've written, written the same. I've written that I've read the articles I wrote in 2013 every day. Someone writes the same article. They just discovered it for the first time, and it's 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 one of those funny old things that people just say it's tulip because uh, there's nothing there. Well, there is something there. It's called a network. And when you get hundreds of millions of people together, that's worth something. And you know, one of the one of the analogies I like to use is the WhatsApp acquisition about a decade ago, nearly um, for for, for um, eight billion or eighteen billion dollars by Facebook. And people thought that was crazy at the time. It made no money. How could you pay eighteen billion dollars something that makes no money? And you realise it was just cheap. I mean, you know, there are tons of tokens worth eighteen billion dollars that make no money. And and WhatsApp got the world's attention. So that was actually a really good deal, one of the best deals in history, in fact. And and so. If you go back to the, um, the, the the sort of mid, the, uh, the modern civilization with the, with the joint stock company or the company, we went from a world where you paid someone for a day for, for a day's work and and, and, got, uh, and you gave them a day's wage, and the joint stock company said, well, let's put those hundred people together, and and get, let them have a collective output. And by the way, the value of that output is different from the wage, and we can actually sell that to shareholders. And if you think about that. In, in simple terms, it's actually quite evil, isn't it? You can see how people at the time are thinking, that's a bit evil. Those hundred people are doing all the hard work, and yet those fat people over there sitting in the pub are making all the money, you know? But that was the creation of a company. And so that value was when you could separate the labor from the output. And and here we've come into the 21st century, and we're saying, well, what's the value of a network? What, what happens when you put lots of people together and, and, and make them interact? And, and you know, things happen in that world. You're creating it. It's almost like some sort of um, digital um, um, empire where you're, you know, you're creating colonies in cyberspace. You know, and, and it's all it's all still quite new. I mean, it's only twelve. Bitcoin's only two thousand and nine, and and only really we've only really been thinking about it properly for the last couple of years. Actually, when you when you print, when you boil it down, because so much has happened in the last two years that it, it's very different, um, and, and we're all trying to understand this. But, but there's, a, there's a huge amount of value in the concept of a network. How safe is it for investors to get involved with projects consisting of large decentralised networks like Bitcoin, given regulatory uncertainty? I spoke with the Treasury representative earlier today, and the government is working with international partners to look at ways of clamping down on crypto to make sure it's not being used to evade sanctions. I hope, I hope they, they you know, treat um, dollar cash, sterling cash, euro cash in exactly the same way as they're treating Bitcoin. And if, and if someone's caught swapping a gold coin or an artifact, I hope they're regulating that as well and doing putting the same amount of effort rather than singling out Bitcoin per se. And, you know, why? Why pick on it? I mean, the, 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 the dollar has, has been, um, there's it, probably far more dollars flying around Moscow right now than there are Bitcoins, I would think. 
So, Charlie, payment firms have been in the spotlight this week. What's been going on there? So, although it was never really in doubt, I think this crisis has in some ways brought the power of payments and how people transfer money into the spotlight. Um, so, the big news this week was that Mastercard and Visa had booted sanctioned Russian banks off their networks, which um, anecdotally, and, and you can see on social media, is already having quite the effect on Russian um, Russian people. The there is an alternative system set up in Russia called Mer, which only has about thirty percent penetration at the moment, so it isn't ready to go as a as a replacement for Visa and Mastercard. So that is having a really big impact, um, and I think then we've seen a wider movement as well from fintech firms looking to clamp down on um, sort of sanctioned Russian banks using their networks and Russian users using their networks as well. So PaySara, a Lithuanian fintech, was uh, one of the first to move last week and clamp down on any Russian linked transactions on its uh, on its platform. And then the London listed transfer firm Wise as well implemented restrictions on who was able to send um, and receive Russia f- uh, money from Russia mm. last week. Uh, and it was also looking to kind of keep its network open as long as possible to Ukraine as the ATMs began to falter and the sort of queues began to build up. Um, and then finally, yesterday, we had a pretty powerful statement from Revolut founder Nikolai Saronsky, who is Russian by birth, but has a Ukrainian father and holds British citizenship as well. Uh, so Revolut have committed to opening up transfers to Ukrainian Red Cross for users um, for fee-free. And Revolut has said they'll match them up to £1.5 million a day. Um, and that came alongside a pretty powerful statement from him sort of condemning the war um, and and calling for its end immediately. Um, So I think we're getting a sense of how fintech firms and how payments platforms in general, how big a part they play in people's lives and quite how integrated international payment systems have become over the past few years and quite how devastating it can be when they are withdrawn as well. And that's all we have time for. Thank you for listening and see you next week.